So there are two snowmen standing in a field. One snowman turns to the other snowman and says, Can you smell carrots? <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to The Ant Hill, a podcast from The Conversation. I'm Will DeFratis. And I'm Annabelle Bly. In this episode, we're trying to be funny, so bear with us. Yep, August is known as silly season in the news trade. It's the time of year that you get stories about animals doing stupid things on the evening news, as opposed to just in internet memes. So we thought we'd embrace this and try to tickle you pink in this podcast. As well as a few bad jokes, we'll be investigating how our humour develops as we grow up, from pulling funny faces and poo gags to sarcasm and linguistic trickery. There are loads of studies to show that laughter is good for you. It's supposed to make us happier, healthier and even help us to live longer. But we'll also be looking into the more serious side of being funny and how comedy can be used as an aid to talk about serious subjects. And be sure to listen to the end of this podcast to catch the conversation's deputy editor, known as Hilarious Joe in her youth, telling some of her favourite jokes. First up, though, we are going to delve into a bit of the history of humour. It seems a lot of our modern-day sense of humour actually takes inspiration from those stiff and starchy Victorians of the 19th century, who, it turns out, loved nothing more than a good old chuckle. Holly Squire has the story. Laughter. It's as old as the hills and one of the most contagious of all emotions. But it isn't just for humans. It's seen in a similar form in other great apes too. And studies show that even rats laugh when they're tickled. Not that you've probably ever heard a rat laugh. Their giggles are said to be very high-pitched. The health benefits of laughing are widely chronicled. It releases endorphins, which makes us feel happier, as well as other hormones that can help to reduce stress and boost our immune system. So, from laughter therapy, laughter yoga, to the good old-fashioned comedy club, more and more people are keen to get together to just have a good old laugh. And it seems this is something we've got the Victorians to thank for, on top of the flushing loo, the paperclip, and even jelly babies. I'm sure there's a gag in there somewhere. When we tend to imagine the Victorians, we perhaps think of them as being rather grim uh, and serious people. You know, there's that famous quote from Queen Victoria, we are not amused. And that, I think, is how a lot of people think of the Victorians. That's Bob Nicholson. He's a senior lecturer in history at Edgehill University, and lately he's become really interested in Victorian jokes. Now, Bob says this old stereotype of the Victorians being all stiff upper lip isn't really fair, because millions of jokes were written and told during the 19th century. They were printed in books and newspapers, performed in theatres and music halls, and retold in pubs, kitchens and hansom cabs, which is a kind of horse-drawn carriage. And a lot of these jokes live on in one form or another to this day. There are um, tons of jokes. Any joke that you might hear about, let's say, lawyers or mothers-in-law, they definitely go back to the Victorian period. There are absolutely tons of them. Um, So classic Victorian mother-in-law joke might go... uh, A wife goes up to uh, her husband and says, You'll never believe it. My mother's just told me that she wants to be cremated. And the husband says, You know, tell her to put a coat on, I'll take her down to working this morning. Bob explains how some Victorians actually made a living from writing jokes, much like our modern-day comedians. They were paid by the joke, a few pence per joke, and some of them churned out hundreds a day and sent them off to magazines and newspapers, which is where most of the best gags were to be found. Most popular Victorian newspapers would have a weekly column of about 20 or 30 jokes. And interestingly, most of those jokes would be stolen from another newspaper, 
who probably stole them from another newspaper before that. So jokes are sort of passed on, uh, cut and paste from publication to publication. All that means is that the best jokes, the ones that really tickle people, sort of go viral, I guess, as we talk about now on the internet. I found some jokes that have travelled the entire world. So there's one that I, I discovered that originated in New York, I think, that went something like, there is an undertaker out in Nevada who has a sign outside of his shop that says, you kick the bucket, we do the rest. And that's kind of play on this uh, famous Kodak advertising slogan, you press the button, we do the rest for the uh, Kodak cameras. Anyway, that joke started in New York, it circulated throughout the Midwest, eventually right the way through to California, got imported into Britain, went viral around Britain, and eventually it was a sort of joke that was being used by British politicians whenever they had a kind of a political meeting out in the provinces. They would say, you know, the, the one thing this government needs to do now is kick the bucket and we'll do the rest. So we can kind of see a tiny joke written by somebody in New York travel the world. I found it in Australia, New Zealand as well. So it seems most Victorians did actually have a sense of humour after all, albeit one that isn't so dissimilar to our own. Now, what you're about to hear next is a very basic experiment to see if those jokes of yesteryear can still pack a punch today. We sent our Manchester editor along to meet Bob so he could try out his top three Victorian jokes. Now, Manchester is a place famed for its humour and comedians. Think Jason Mansford, Carolina Hearn, Alan Carr. So let's see what the conversation's Paul Keaveney, self-confessed comedy fan, made of these hundred-year-old gags. So, we have one here. Two men meet up in town. Uh, first man says, I say, why didn't you put on a clean collar before you left home? To which his friend replies, because your mother hadn't sent home my washing. Which I reckon is, is one of the earliest your mama jokes I've been able to, <laughs> to find so far. Uh, so I quite like that one. I think that's kind of got a bit of legs. There are some really silly ones that you might find in a Christmas cracker now, like, uh, how do you make a Venetian blind? Poke him in the eye. <laughs> yes. That's a kind of classic. You probably would still see that in a Christmas cracker or on a lolly stick these days, wouldn't you? Other ones are much more torturous. Um, I think this is the most torturous one I've ever heard, and uh, I, I do rather like it. If you were going to kill a conversational goose, what vegetable would she allude to? Asparagus. Oh, it's meant to be asparagus. So, I mean, that's really bad. I mean, it, it sort of works more written down, but that's pretty poor. There's another one like that, um, which actually, this, this, this is still around. If you Google this, you'll find people posting it on the internet. When do we possess a vegetable timepiece? When we get up at 8 o'clock. <laughs> Which, providing you pronounce it correctly, should sound like get a potato clock. You'll see people posting it on social media, usually saying, oh, it's a lame joke, but that's still got some legs. I think we got a few laughs out of Paul there, didn't we? So, I'm declaring this experiment a success. It's official. Some Victorian jokes are still funny today. But, as Bob explains, there's been a few changes over the years. Namely, how you get to the punchline. The style of jokes has changed. So a lot of Victorian jokes tend to have a slightly more laborious punchline. So in a joke we might say, what's the difference between X and Y? The Victorians might say, no, what should you say if you considered it is the difference between... So, so the packaging has changed, but the underlying jokes are often very similar. There are a lot of Victorian jokes that we would now see as being racist or misogynist that are, you know, we would now see as being deeply unpleasant. Though obviously we shouldn't be too quick to, to think that those jokes have gone from modern society either. They're just no longer on primetime TV. You know, that you go onto the internet, you'll find them very quickly. So, yeah, I would say it's more to do with packaging that's changed. There are very few subjects that have completely disappeared from, from if you like, the comic lexicon. 
fashions, I guess, so the crinoline, you know, those sort of large hoop skirts that the Victorians had, there was a period where there were tons of jokes about them, about women not being able to get through doorways or, you know, knocking over furniture. We probably wouldn't make that joke now, but we would make jokes about fashion in other ways. So the subjects, you know, they move with the times, of course. You know, every joke is very much of its time. But there is something essential, I think, under there that remains. As a researcher of humour, it's clear that Bob has a pretty fun job. But he says that one of the tragedies for him is that gags and comedy are often edited out of history. They're seen as not serious enough or unimportant, and they don't tend to be preserved. So Bob has taken it upon himself to reinsert jokes and funny things back into history where they belong. I'm kind of on a mission at the moment to rescue these jokes because they have been ignored by historians by and large. They're quite hard to find. You've really got to dig around to uncover them. So for the last couple of years, I've been working with the British Library on a project to create a digital archive of these jokes. And the idea is we're going to go into the British Library's collections of books, newspapers and other texts. We're going to find the jokes, we're going to rescue them and put them online where anybody can look at them. So hopefully soon, within the next year or two, we'll have the kind of first stage of this archive built where you'll be able to go on there and say, right, show me every Victorian joke in which a man speaks to a woman or every Victorian joke about um, teachers and their pupils. And it should be possible then, hopefully, for, for everybody around the world to start rediscovering some of this long-forgotten comedy. So, while Bob works on pulling together loads of jokes from across the globe, I've been working on one of my own, or, in true Victorian style, one I've heard before and adapted for a new audience. So, here goes. What do you call a train with a cold? A choo-choo train! Yeah, I didn't say it was good. But still, at least they've given me a laugh. That was The Conversation's Holly Squire. Hey Will, I've got a good one for you. Knock, knock. Who's there? Europe. Europe who? No, Europe who? And uh, with that, we neatly segue into the next part of our podcast where we try to answer the age-old question of why do kids find poo so funny? Doing the investigating is our science editor, Miriam Frankel, who's got a personal stake in this story. Her son won't stop laughing at faecal-related matters at the moment. She's spoken to two experts in child development to find out why and if it will ever stop. How did the went to the loo. Humpty Dumpty did the big poo. <laughs> Sometimes my three-year-old is hilarious. But a lot of the time, his comedy repertoire is slightly repetitive. So why do preschoolers find poo so funny? And when can we expect them to become fully-fledged comedians appreciating concepts like sarcasm and irony. To find out, I spoke to two experts about how children develop a sense of humor. It turns out that humor is an important part of becoming social beings. Children have to understand that they are sharing an experience with another person before they can begin to establish a sense of humor. This process actually starts very early. Paige Davis, a psychologist and an expert in child development at the University of Huddersfield, explains. So in infancy, they're not able to walk yet, so you don't see a stand-up comedy club. <laughs> but you do see infants smiling and laughing, and that's the beginnings of them becoming comics. So at seven months, you see infants deliberately repeating behaviors that make people laugh. They're, they're trying to engage in that socialization and that, that shared experience. 
some of the ways they would do this is you've seen infants stick their tongue out or making a funny face. You make one at them and they try to make one at you. My son thought it was hilarious to slap me five for some reason. He just would keep putting his hand up. So those are the ways that you see humor in infancy and those beginnings of being humorous. As babies grow into toddlers, they become more mobile and have language at their disposal. This enables them to engage in slightly more recognizable forms of humor, such as knock-knock jokes. So basically jokes involving simple linguistics or bodily movement. And then you have, they're starting to do the combination of both simple linguistics and bodily movement. So I remember Fisher used to, it was the beginnings of him really using these combined jokes uh, where he would, our cat would be sleeping and he'd take food and put it on top of the sleeping cat and go, yum, yum. That was the combination joke. What did you eat in nursery today? A poo-poo. <laughs> and that brings us to the dreaded toilet humor phase, which normally starts appearing between the ages of two and three. But why do kids love it so much? Sigmund Freud argued that this is when children go through an anal stage, when they get psychosexual pleasure from the development of anal control through toilet training. This kind of theory no longer holds much sway among scientists. But it's true that toilet training is a very big deal in a child's life. Justin Williams, a child psychiatrist at the University of Aberdeen, says toilet humor is part of learning to cope with that. It's a combination of safely talking about a new thing and an understanding of the subject being slightly taboo, which clearly makes it funny. Using toilet humor therefore shows that a child is reflecting on what they're learning and on the social rules that surround it. If you just think about what we all find funny, if you think about what makes anybody laugh, and it's the things which we are a bit unsure about, and particularly in a social context, when we're unsure about the social rules um, and about how to behave, um, we tend to make jokes about it. It's, it's part of play and plays the way by which we learn. And by making jokes, we learn about what the social rules are. We find out what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. So I think it's not really surprising that when children are at that stage where they're learning um, the social conventions and they have a lot of anxiety about whether or not they can manage to cope with these new social conventions, um, that they start to, to make jokes about it. It seems for some people this kind of humour never really goes away. If you look at it, it's actually the themes. The theme doesn't go away. The actual topic, perhaps, it no longer becomes funny to go around saying the word poo. So for a two-year-old, it's just hilarious just to use the words. So the actual topic, the stuff about poo, which continues to be amusing, changes slightly, and particularly sort of more contextual stuff becomes important. But I don't think it ever goes away, really. Paige has first-hand dealings with toilet humour, thanks to her son and his friends at the nursery. They made this fake juice called Odeo juice, which is super disgusting. It smells like poo, which is the toilet humour. And they will spill it on you. And it's all imagination stuff. They'll spill it on you. They trick each other into drinking it. So it's this word that they've made up, and it's this pretend action, and it's all this humour interplay. And they're really socializing with each other and with the adults that they 
they do it with. Luckily, children soon grow up and develop other forms of humor. In middle and late childhood, they start learning about double meanings and sarcasm and irony. This evolution continues into adolescence. I would say it would have to be past five years old, but that's that's really where the, where they would understand more about about sarcasm because that again everything's going to really go back to socialization, and every child is going to differ because when you think about it, it it has to do with practice. So if you're if you have a really sarcastic parent then you're going to end up being able to pick that up quicker than a child that doesn't have a parent that's sarcastic. Or if you have a parent that just isn't really, for lack of a better word, isn't funny, <laughs> you might have to practice more with your friends or things like that. When you get to middle and late childhood, and they've started practicing joking, they start getting more sophisticated, they start looking at double meanings for things, like the horse with the long face that walks into the bar. And then by adolescence, I'd say, they recognize hypocrisy in the world, so you start seeing dry humor in adolescence. Throughout childhood, you have the humor that's evolving, and adolescent humor is going to look a lot more like adult humor. But you couldn't have that dry humor or or humor that's just very sophisticated without going through those stages beforehand. So if you want your child to develop a sophisticated sense of humor, you're going to have to put up with funny face pulling and potty humor first. But how much should you laugh at this? As a parent, teacher, or carer, how should you react when a child makes a slightly inappropriate joke? According to Paige, it's complicated. First of all, sometimes it is actually funny. And maybe I have more of a toilet humor mind than other people, but sometimes I can't help but laugh. It's good to share the interaction, but I would just say not reinforcing it too strongly. So, you know, you can lead the child into, if we're going to joke, we should not joke only about this. There are also other funny things. I mean, how many times do you hear people say, well, it was funny the first time, but... It's not funny now. Kids are going to have to learn, because they're going to be functional members in society, that some poo jokes are okay, but there are certain times and places for poo jokes. So yeah, we should joke on their level, but also encourage and model and scaffold the child. So letting them kind of join in on a joke that they might not be able to make themselves, but you're helping them to be a better joker. And eventually, they'll then be able to joke at a higher level. And it helps their cognitive skills, actually. There's good reason to keep an eye on a child's humor development. Nonsensical or non-existent humor can, for instance, be a sign of autism or other conditions. Although each autistic child is different, some may have difficulty appreciating jokes that play with language and take things very literally. Of course, they will still be wonderfully creative in coming up with their own jokes. Similarly, while a lack of toilet humour doesn't necessarily have to be an issue, it could point to certain insecurities in the child. Here's Justin again. I think just in terms of my clinical population, and I'm, I'm aware that a number of the children who I see, children who have autism or children who have obsession-compulsive disorder, then for them, 
it's a subject of anxiety and there's lots of reasons why they might find it uh, a serious topic and they may have a you know have a fear of incontinence they have a fear of germs they have a fear of poo fear of dirt so evidently that that needs to be treated sensitively it's not really going to be that helpful to make jokes about it once again humor is a safe way for a child to communicate something serious Paige told me about an experience she had in a clinic where a child's strange use of humor was a red flag that there was something wrong going on in their life If you see a child, or rather if you hear a child with humor that's that's really inappropriate, these could indicate that something's going on. Like joking about violence at home or joking about some type of abuse or joking about things that they really shouldn't know yet. So when I worked on an inpatient facility in Florida, I had a child that joked with me about people that were sexy, and he was five. And he was, in fact, getting abused at home. So those jokes were this safe way of saying, hey, I need help. It seems a child's humor can tell us a lot about what's going on in their world. And sometimes joking on their level helps develop a social bond and an open channel of communication between an adult and a child. But if you're getting tired of poo jokes, remember that they ultimately help limit the shame and embarrassment that occurs during the inevitable potty training accidents. And before you know it, the child will be making highly sophisticated jokes, just like this one. Uh, in case you didn't quite catch that, that was uh, waiter, waiter. There's a fly in my soup, as told by our science editor Miriam Frankel's three-year-old son. It's not just kids that use humour to help them talk about serious issues. Satire and irony are age-old tools used by those who want to criticise powerful people. But academia has a complicated relationship with humour, as our producer Gemma Ware found out. While some researchers celebrate its power to make a serious point, others frown upon any funny business in the ivory tower. Have you heard the one about the researcher doing a PhD in stand-up comedy? Uh, a sign that I'm doing it right will be if my examiners get drunk and then heckle me during the viva. That's Kate Fox. She's in the final stages of writing up her PhD at the University of Leeds on being funny and from the north of England. And she's also a stand-up comedian. Sometimes people say, don't you find that looking at stand-up comedy sucks all the joy out of it? And I'm like, why would analysing the normative social hegemonies underlying my joke structures suck all the joy out of them? As part of her research, Kate is looking at how humour can be used to make a serious point by comedians by politicians, and even by academics. Basically, at the beginning of the thesis, I said, if I cannot make my PhD funny, then to me, it will have failed. Because if I'm trying to say that humour is a way to to make serious points and to affect change in the world, then I should be able to do it within my thesis. We'll come back to that a bit later, and what Kate actually did in her thesis to make it funny. But before she got to writing it up, she hit upon a problem. She wanted to find a word that would sum up what it is to use humour for serious purposes. She couldn't find one. So what did she do? She made one up. So making up the word, I was kind of taking the mickey, in some senses, out of French philosophers like Derrida, who it felt like, you know, he couldn't go a day without making up a new word. Um... I mashed the words humour 
and Gravitas together came up with Humitas, which does possibly sound like a cleaning company or somewhere that jokes go to die. Um, But Humitas, (laughs) it does do that thing that I wanted it to do of saying, look, um, this is humour that is not mere play. It is useful. For Kate, Humitas is a kind of rhetoric, somebody using humour in what would normally be a serious, formal occasion but in a way that advances their point. Kate gives the example of an Icelandic politician who she says is fantastically humatastic. Jón Nár, who was the former mayor of Reykjavik, who really didn't see a distinction between his serious speech and his joking speech. He was an anarcho-surrealist um, who was funny all the time, who saw politics as both ridiculous and powerful at the same time. And there's something really important about that in a time of Trump, where he is making politics feel merely ridiculous and not using humour in a skilled way. Jon Nahr both recognise that politicians are jokes and that they can affect change in the world. And I think that comes closer to how many people are feeling today about politics and politicians because of a sense of alienation, really, around how politics can speak to them and their lives. Stand-up comedians are also doing this in a slightly different way, by becoming activists in their own right. Kate points to Gronya Maguire, an Irish comedian who became involved in a campaign back in 2015 to get the Irish government to change its anti-abortion laws. And she was involved in a Twitter campaign, getting people to send details of their periods to the Irish Premier. The Premier at the time, Enda Kenny, was inundated with tweets from women who took Maguire's lead and told him details of their menstrual cycle. So she was using her comedy capital, really, in in two ways. First of all, she was a stand-up, and second of all, she was doing a funny campaign and getting people involved. While these comedians are stepping out of the theatres and comedy clubs they're used to, something similar has been happening within academia. Researchers are taking to the stage. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Good evening. evening. Thank you, thank you. My name is Johan Faisy, as he obviously couldn't pronounce, um, and I'm from the University of Dundee. Thank you. Johan is a professor of geography and environmental science and an interdisciplinary researcher. Now, I'm what they call an interdisciplinary researcher. That basically means being disciplined at trying to do everything, being crap at it and getting nothing done. (laughs) He's also tried his hand at stand-up comedy at Bright Club Dundee, a comedy night in the Scottish university town where all the performers are academics. This is a recording from a gig back in 2014 entitled Whose Reality Is It Anyway? So, of course, for anyone who's spent a long time working in another culture... Uh, and spending time living in another culture, it's not until you get, they will appreciate, it's not until you get home that it really hits you. It's kind of like having a hangover. You feel shit, but you just can't wait to do it again. <laughs> and, um, and this phenomenon was perfectly articulated in a book called The Innocent Anthropologist. And it's by a guy called Nigel Barley. And at the end of the book, in the final pages... Nigel phones the friend whose conversation had sent him to the field in the first place. He said, Hi, you're back. Yes. Was it boring? Yes. Did you get very sick? Oh, yes. Did you bring back notes you can't make head or tail of? Forget to ask all the important questions. Oh, yes. 
so when are you going back? <laughs> and I laughed feebly that a number of years later, I found myself back in Dundee. Thank you very much. Bright Club was born back in 2009. I spoke to Steve Cross, one of its founders, who was working at University College London at the time, and hit upon the idea of training academics to do stand-up comedy. What started as a variety show quickly became a regular comedy night, with Bright Club starting up all over the country. There are currently six or seven in the UK. The number fluctuates, with nights also taking place in Ireland, Australia, Belgium and Spain. I asked Steve, who now runs a number of other science communication initiatives involving comedy and performance, what were some of the funniest things he's seen at a Bright Club? Well, sometimes it's the ones where you think this can't possibly ever be a Bright Club set. So we had a political scientist whose area of research is the use of violence in political terrorism, who did eight minutes of stand-up that offended no one, attacked nobody weak. Um, and it's that sort of thing where you people say, my work's not funny. And it's like, well, the job isn't to make your work funny. It's to be funny while you talk about your work. And that's where it's really nice when we get medics or public health people or immunologists talking about very, very serious issues, maternal death in developing nations. They get their message across without poking fun at either the mothers or the children or the healthcare systems in those nations, but they can poke fun at the you know the structure of world capitalism that allows these things to happen. They can poke fun at me for asking them to go on stage and be funny while they talk about maternal death. That's the sort of thing that really appeals, is saying, well, let's use the special licence of comedy to talk about stuff that really matters as entertainment, even though simultaneously you are learning about research and sometimes really fundamental, really quite challenging research. Using humour in this way, says Steve, allows the researcher to get to a bigger truth about their subject that they can only ever scratch the surface of in a journal article or conference paper. But these Bright Club events are a stark contrast to what's usually allowed within the formal structures of academia. People really don't expect academics to be funny, uh, at least not intentionally so. This is Kate Watson, Professor of Education at the University of Stirling. Academics expect their work to be taken seriously, and if you're funny, that seems to undermine that view. And I think there is a, this is a misunderstanding among academics, scientists and social scientists in particular, and they don't seem to understand the importance of humour in understanding what it is to be human. Unlike Kate Fox, this Kate is no stand-up comedian herself, but she's among a growing group of academics pushing for greater recognition of humour within social science research. She's faced criticism along the way, she was told by one peer reviewer who had read an article that she'd written for submission to a journal that she'd brought social science into disrepute because she'd used satire to make a point. On another occasion, I, I got into very serious bother with a, a paper in which I'd done a satirical critique of education policy and um, pointing out that sort of the inherent absurdity of this um, particular piece of policy. And I was actually called uh, to give an account of myself by a very senior policymaker and in a way that I did feel that I was being lent on. But in a way also, although that was quite unpleasant, I did take heart from thinking that, that actually I joined a long list of humorous writers who have offended um, the authorities. And, and I think that's really one of the very important things that humor can do, is that it can subvert policy. It's a way of speaking truth to power. She says that humor, and irony in particular, has been used by social scientists for hundreds of years. The importance for social scientists is that 
irony allows you to see things in new and um, previously unsuspected ways. So it, irony is a way of overturning conventional views. So and it allows us to examine our assumptions so that we can arrive at perhaps alternative interpretations of what's going on in, in the, the social world. And by doing that, it allows then perhaps the possibility for new solutions to emerge for some of the, um, you know, the wicked problems that, that, that beset us. Kate points to the example of the famous North American sociologist, Irvin Goffman, as one of the greatest exponents of irony in the social sciences. In a book called Asylums, published in the early 1960s, he wrote about the inmates and staff of mental hospitals. And he ends up completely overturning our expectations of what constitutes rational and irrational behaviour. And so in a way, it's the, it's the patients that end up as moral exemplars for the rest of us. Kate hopes that in the future, more social scientists will consider humour and irony as one more tool that they can use to get people seeing the world in a different way. That's what stand-up comedian, come academic Kate Fox is trying to do. She recently made an episode of a BBC Radio 4 show called The Price of Happiness, which she describes as a show about class and class in-betweenness. It's influenced by her PhD research about northernness and stand-up. Here's a short clip courtesy of the production company, Impatient Productions, who made the show for the BBC. (laughs) In writing this show, I have discovered that people feel uncomfortable admitting what class they think they are in public. I have sometimes wished that I was asking them about something they'd be happier to own up to, like having an STD or (laughs) having murdered someone or watching Mrs Brown's boys. Obviously, it depends where I perform it. The BBC wanted me to perform this show here in Newcastle because they said it's closer to my natural habitat. (laughs) Sometimes you will get middle-class people in the audience who don't want to speak up when I ask things because they think the proud working-class people will look down on them. Sometimes you get working-class people in the audience who don't want to speak up because they think the proud middle-class people will look down on them. Sometimes it's a relief if you get an MP in who everyone can proudly look down on. (laughs) As part of her PhD, she's written another stand-up show called Lots of Planets Have a North, which is a line from the TV show Doctor Who. The show is a form of what's called autoethnography, a performance of her own life. But don't worry, she hasn't left the comedy out of her written thesis either. In order to use Humitas within her own PhD thesis, every now and then, another voice will pop up within the text in italics. Every now and then it'll just perhaps point out that I'm being pretentious or it'll disagree with me. It has become almost another voice um, and it also it will pop up with jokes as well. Kate says that other scholars before her have pointed out that stand-ups are basically anthropologists anyway. They perform shows using material about their own life, about stuff they've researched on other people, or about a particular cultural context, and they critique it as they go along. Um, So for me, it isn't really a very big leap to say, okay, well, if a stand-up can be an ethnographer, then an ethnographer can surely be a stand-up. Jokes aside... There is a wider point here, that humour, which can be cutting, raw and subversive, allows us to see the world in new ways. And if that is part of what academics are trying to do, then they shouldn't be scared to embrace it.
That was The Conversations, Gemma Ware. Now, if you're interested in hearing more about the nexus of science and stand-up, check out the Scientist Not the Science podcast, where the host Stuart Higgins interviews scientists about, well, being scientists. In one of his episodes from earlier this year, Stuart talked to comedian Robin Ince, who presents the Infinite Monkey Cage on Radio 4, about making comedy about science. And while you're checking out his podcast, be sure to click on episode 44 too. You'll hear two of our colleagues, science editor Stephen Harris and Miriam Frankel, who we heard from before, talking about the conversation and about editing articles for academics. That is a podcast called Scientists Not the Science. Have a listen. Now, as promised, here's the conversation's deputy editor, Joe Adetunji, with her favourite jokes. Why are pirates called pirates? Because they are. How does... Moses make his tea. He brews it. What do you call a nosy chilli pepper? Jalapeno business. Thank you. Thank you to Hilarious Joe herself. That is it for this month's episode of The Ant Hill. Thank you to all the academics who have spoken to us. Our podcast is produced by Gemma Ware and myself. Check out theconversation.com where you can sign up to our free daily newsletter and read expert opinion and analysis of the news, including plenty more stories on the theme of humour. Thanks to you for listening in. If you've enjoyed the show, please tell your friends about us and give us a review on your podcatcher of choice. And a final big thanks to City University London's journalism department for letting us use their studios. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.